Welcome to a reading of the Adult Sabbath School Bible Study Guide for January, February and March 2014. Titled Discipleship, it's brought to you by the Sabbath School Department, Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired, and through the services of Adventist Media Network. Lesson 12 for March 15 to 21, The Harvest and the Harvesters. Sabbath afternoon, March 15. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, the harvest is ready. The harvesters are there. Are they prepared? Lord, we come to you this week as we open your word that your Holy Spirit will guide us, that each of us may be part of that harvest, either as the ones who are being harvested or those who are willing to share your love to those around them and the message that you have for them. Bless us now as we open your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our memory text this week is John chapter 15, verse 8. Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. John 15, verse 8, let's read that again. Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. In many respects, this week's study is a continuation of the previous lesson. Christ established spiritual leaders for the distinct purpose of proclaiming the kingdom of God. The principles and methodology that Jesus employed must remain the spiritual foundation for the Christian's preparation today. In other words, modern leadership development theories must never supplant the foundation that Christ himself laid. Whenever hype and publicity take precedence over spiritual growth, the results are shallowness and spiritual sterility. Whenever proselytizing displaces repentance, conversion and spiritual transformation, the mission falters. Training leaders to conduct membership drives, media blitzes and public relations campaigns instead of preparing them for spiritual warfare is courting disaster. True evangelism and disciple-making are centred around 1. The acknowledgement of our sinfulness 2. Genuine heartfelt contrition 3. Our unreserved spiritual surrender and 4. The irrepressible compulsion to disseminate God's divine message to others. Sunday, March 16, Beggar's Bread Nearing his earthly departure, Christ's concern focused upon his disciples, whom he had selflessly served and deeply loved. They would not be abandoned. Although Jesus himself had to return to heaven, the Holy Spirit was commissioned to supply the spiritual intimacy that the disciples had enjoyed in his presence. Christ's instruction regarding the Spirit's work was so valuable that John devotes several chapters to its preservation. One defining element was the Spirit's testimony concerning Christ, even though the Spirit would not testify unaided. Accompanied by the Spirit, Christ's disciples would likewise testify concerning Jesus' ministry. God could have commissioned angels, unassisted by human beings, to broadcast the gospel. Instead, he elected to appoint sinful, erring, unpredictable humans for this sacred calling. Question. 
Read John, chapter 1, verses 40 to 46, chapter 4, verses 28 to 30, chapter 15, 26 and 27, and chapter 19, 35 and 36. What do these texts tell us about the ways in which the human and divine work together in the winning of souls? First of all, John chapter 1, verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Now, when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. The following day, Jesus went to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. And John chapter 4, verse 28, The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city, and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. And John chapter 15 Verse 26, But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. And John chapter 19, verse 35, And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you may believe. For these things were done, that the scripture should be fulfilled, not one of his bones shall be broken. Evangelism has been colloquially defined as beggars telling other beggars where to find bread. Andrew certainly excelled here. The writings of his brother Peter were to be included in scripture one day. Peter's ministry was chronicled in Acts, and Christ included Peter among his three closest associates. Those honours never attended Andrew. Nevertheless, he received special recognition for following Christ's simple instruction to lead people to Jesus. How many of God's chosen vessels, prolific leaders in evangelism, administration and leadership, have been introduced to Christ by faithful disciples whose identities, humanly speaking, have long been forgotten? Although these people were not prominent themselves, think how crippled God's work might have been had they not faithfully witnessed about Jesus. Christ prepared his disciples for greater tasks by first offering simple assignments well within their reach. The Samaritan woman, Philip and Andrew demonstrate the power of simple testimonies and heartfelt invitations. We all are called to do likewise.
Monday, March 17, when Jesus urged patience. Question. Read Luke chapter 24, verses 47 to 53, Acts 1, 6 to 8, and Acts 16, verses 6 to 10. Why was waiting for the Spirit necessary? What was the Spirit's role in the evangelistic outreach of the primitive church? What encouragement might modern believers draw from Paul's experience when facing frustration? And what lessons regarding patience and waiting for God's timing are suggested within these passages? First of all, Luke chapter 24, verses 47 to 53. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. But tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. Now it came to pass, while he blessed them, that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him, and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continually in the temple, praising and blessing God. Amen. And Acts chapter 1, verses 6 to 8, Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And Acts chapter 16, verses 6 to 10. Now, when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. After they had come to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So, passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now, after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Through discourse and example, Jesus taught his disciples patience. Facing bigotry, ignorance, misunderstanding and outright conspiracy, Christ nonetheless patiently persevered. Such perseverance was anchored by Christ's complete dependence upon God's divine Spirit. Jesus understood that unless these disciples should likewise experience this dependence, the kingdom's advancement was seriously jeopardized. Conversely, should they learn this lesson at the outset, their future ministry would be destined for heavenly attainments. Therefore, his departing command was, Wait. Christ desires that modern believers master that lesson also. Well-intentioned but self-confident Christians, when unwilling to patiently await the Spirit's guidance, can embarrass themselves and God's kingdom. The Apostle Paul drafted ambitious plans for entering Bithynia, but even headstrong Paul was sensitive to God's leading and accepted rather than resisted the Spirit's interference. The Apostle willingly received the Spirit's directive that sent him to Macedonia instead. Numerous miracles attended his efforts there. Had Paul rushed headlong with his designs, the European mission might have stalled indefinitely. So, to finish today, 
How can our anxious spirits be calm to patiently await the Spirit's leading? What practical things should modern believers do in their attempts to cultivate such patience? What does patient, prayerful trust indicate regarding our relationship with God? Tuesday, March 18, Exercising Authority Question. Compare the following passages, Mark 6, 7-13, Matthew 16, 14-19, chapter 18, verses 17-20, chapter 28, verses 18-20, and John 20, verses 21-23. What does this tell us about the kind of authority that Jesus' disciples had? What does this mean for us today? First of all, Mark chapter 6, verses 7 to 13. And he called the twelve to himself, and began to send them out two by two, and gave them power over unclean spirits. He commanded them to take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bag, no bread, no copper in their money belts, but to wear sandals, and not to put on two tunics. Also he said to them, In whatever place you enter a house, stay there till you depart from that place. And whoever will not receive you, nor hear you, when you depart from there, shake off the dust under your feet as a testimony against them. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. So they went out and preached that people should repent. And they cast out many demons, and anointed with oil many who were sick, and healed them. And Matthew chapter 16, verses 14 to 19. So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And Matthew chapter 18, verses 17 to 20. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound on heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name... I am there in the midst of them. And Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always." even to the end of the age. Amen. 
In the book Desire of Ages, page 413 to 414, we read, Peter had expressed the truth which is the foundation of the church's faith, and Jesus now honoured him as a representative of the whole body of believers. He said, I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The keys of the kingdom of heaven are the words of Christ. All the words of Holy Scripture are his, and are here included. These words have power to open and to shut heaven. They declare the conditions upon which men are received or rejected. Thus the work of those who preach God's word is a savour of life unto life, or of death unto death. Theirs is a mission weighted with eternal results. End of quote. As the Father commissioned Jesus, so Christ commissions his disciples. Through the Spirit, the Father invested Christ with divine power. Through the Spirit, Jesus likewise invests his disciples with divine power, commensurate with their earthly assignments. No follower should fear that Christ has shortchanged them. Every necessary skill, talent, capability and strength has been supplied. Sometimes, human leadership fails to recognize the principles involved. Whenever leaders assign tasks without extending commensurate power, failure is predictable. Often, leaders' insecurities surface through controlling behaviors that subjugate the thoughts, God-ordained creativity, and individuality of others. Thus emasculated, the subjugated disciple fails to be effective. Such behaviour would look like a conductor attempting to play every instrument simultaneously instead of conducting a symphony. Jesus' example speaks volumes here. If anyone ever possessed the right to withhold authority and dictate behaviour, Christ certainly did. Contrarily, he invested others with authority, commissioned them to labour outside of his presence, where his only influence would be his instruction and examples, and sent them to minister and witness. Wednesday, March 19, Labourers for the Harvest. Matthew 9, 36-38 reads, But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them, because they fainted, and were scattered abroad, as sheep having no shepherd. Then saith he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the labourers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth labourers into his harvest. Question. What important message can we take from these verses for ourselves today and for the task ahead of us? The spiritual harvest overflowed, but harvesters were scarce. The heart soil had been prepared. The spiritual seed had been planted. Germination, plentiful moisture and abundant sunshine spurred unbelievable growth. Ripened souls awaited harvesting, but where were the harvesters? Utilising simple, easily understood word pictures, Jesus sought to inspire contagious zeal. Sometimes, Christians covet their fellowship with other believers and cluster together, blindly pie-passing worldly seekers who were ripened for harvest. 
perhaps not realising their divine accountability for perishing souls, they busy themselves with church engagements, civic responsibilities, building maintenance and other worthwhile projects dedicated to preserving the status quo. These are doubtless good things. Well-intentioned members sometimes question the value of evangelism or express the sentiment, Pastor, this evangelism stuff is all right, but don't we need programs for people who are already in the church? This is a fair enough question, though one must also ask, when did Jesus ever lament the shortage of grain preservers? Instead, more harvesters was his prayerful plea. And so to finish today, how can we find the right balance between ministering to the needs of those in the church and at the same time not neglecting outreach? Thursday, March 20, Lost and Found Through teaching and personal example, Jesus taught his disciples to associate with sinners, even notorious ones such as prostitutes and tax collectors. How else would they disciple the whole world? His teaching oftentimes focused upon these sinners. His characterization of them as lost demonstrates how merciful Christ was. He might have characterized them as rebellious, they certainly were, or depraved. Instead, he chose lost. Lost doesn't carry the same negative connotations that are contained in those other words. Rather than castigating fallen souls, we should follow Christ's example. Lost is a generous description because the responsibility is placed upon the finders. Disparaging remarks drive lost people away. Neutral language conveys acceptance and the possibility for relationship. We therefore must be careful not only about the language we speak, but even about the words we think, because our thoughts will greatly impact our attitude toward others. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus encourages believers to become finders. He wants us to love and to reach out to the lost, regardless of the kind of people they are or the kind of lives they live. In the book Christ's Object Lesson, page 210 to 211, we read, This is the service that God has chosen, to loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, and to let the oppressed go free, and that ye break every yoke, and that you hide not thyself from thine own flesh. Isaiah 58, verses 6 and 7. When you see yourselves as sinners saved only by the love of your heavenly Father, you will have tender pity for others who are suffering in sin. You will no longer meet misery and repentance with jealousy and censure. When the ice of selfishness is melted from your hearts, you will be in sympathy with God and will share His joy in the saving of the lost. So to finish today, study Luke chapter 15. What essential message comes through in all these parables? What should that message say to us about the way in which God views the lost and what our responsibility to them is? Well, let's begin at verse 1 in Luke chapter 15. 
Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he spoke this parable to them, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness, and go after the one which is lost, until he finds it? And, when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbours, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine just persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin... Does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbours together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Then he said, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood, and not many days after the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a great famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, but when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion, and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe, and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and sandals on his feet, and bring the fatted calf here, and kill it, and let us eat, and be merry." For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you were always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead, and is alive again, and was lost, 
and is found. Friday, March 21. From the book The Acts of the Apostles, page 37, we read, The disciples felt their spiritual need and cried to the Lord for the holy unction that was to fit them for the work of soul-saving. They did not ask for a blessing for themselves merely. They were weighted with the burden of the salvation of souls. They realized that the gospel was to be carried to the world, and they claimed the power that Christ had promised. And that brings us to our four discussion questions for this week. 1. What principles from Christ's training methodology should modern teachers of disciple-making utilize? Imagine what such training would look like in your church. 2. In Thursday's study, we looked at the question of language and the way in which language is used. Think through the kind of words that we as Seventh-day Adventists often use. Though we might view the words in a certain way, think about how others who are not familiar with our terms might understand those words. In what ways might we need to be more careful about our choice of words, especially with those whom we are seeking to reach? 3. Dwell more on the image we saw earlier about beggars telling other beggars where to get bread. How does that so accurately depict that which witnessing and outreach are all about? Why is it important that we do not forget that image and what it means? And four, what about your local church? Is it more focused on itself and its own needs or on outreach? How can a focus on outreach help the church? Or, to express it another way, if your church were more focused on witnessing and outreach, might it be less concerned about its own needs? How might outreach itself solve those needs? Inside Story our mission story this week is titled Don't Be Ashamed. It comes from Rwanda and Christine Mukahira lives in Rwanda. Don't be ashamed. If you insist on joining another church, you will no longer live with me, my auntie told me firmly. After my parents died, my brother and I lived with our aunt. She had sent us to a Seventh-day Adventist school so we'd have a Christian education, but she didn't expect me to become an Adventist. I tried to explain that I was following God's command, but she said, Not as long as you live in my house. When I told the Bible teacher what my aunt had said, he responded, Following Jesus must be your own decision. I asked if I could be baptized in secret so my aunt wouldn't know, but he gently said, Baptism declares to the whole world your decision to follow Jesus. A secret baptism means that you are ashamed of your faith. He was right. I realized that I didn't have to fear. That night, I told my aunt that I planned to be baptized into the Seventh-day Adventist Church. My baptism was a joyful service. But when I returned home after church, my aunt asked, Were you baptized today? 
I told her, yes, hoping her heart had softened. Then why did you come back here? she asked. On Monday I asked the school principal what to do. Exams were coming up and I needed to focus on doing well. The principal arranged for me to stay in the dormitory at school so I could finish my year and take the exams. But when school was over, I again had no place to live. I stayed with some friends for a few days while I looked for a solution. The pastor suggested that we talk to my aunt. But when the pastor tried to talk to her, she wouldn't listen. She blamed him for my situation. Get out of my house, both of you, she shouted. The pastor and his wife invited me to live with them. What a blessing! They have shown me so much about God's love. I'm so glad I decided to follow Jesus and be baptized. While it was difficult, it has been worth it. I pray that Jesus will touch the lives of my aunt and my brother and that they can find the same happiness I have found. I'm grateful for the Adventist school where I learned to love and obey Jesus. Your mission offerings make a difference every day in thousands of lives. Thank you. Your reader this week has been Dr. Percy Harold. The lessons have been brought to you by the Sabbath School Department, Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired, and through the services of Adventist Media Network. Remember that God is always faithful.